So I remember when this started, watching movies where I lived in San Francisco, and people would jump out of their seats and scream. They'd raise their middle fingers. They'd say all these things at the screen. They'd yell at the projector. And that doesn't happen anymore, you know. David Yoakum here. My best estimate is you'll see about 3,000 advertisements today. I mean, just stop and look around you right now. How many ads or brands are immediately around you, or even on you for that matter? We're joined today by Mark Bartholomew, a professor of Buffalo School of Law and author of Ad Creep, The Case Against Modern Advertising, to talk about this madness. We dive deep on the current advertising landscape, which is historically unprecedented in its scope and invasiveness, how it affects our well-being, and what we might do about it all, both as individuals right away, as well as collectively by way of legal and policy changes. This episode is brought to you by nobody. No ads here. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Mark Bartholomew, welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to talk about the roles and consequences of advertising in modern life. But to set the stage, we should probably begin with just a description of the advertising landscape. Nowadays, where do we find ads? Sure. So you see them in the schools, in public schools, school buses, uh, a little, little signs out in the outfield of the high school baseball team. You see them in state parklands, a little kiosk before you get to go for a hike in some spot of scenic wonder. You see it in public transportation. You see it on parking meters. You see it on fire hydrants. And one I always like to point out to people, talking urinal cakes are another source of, of advertising in a space we probably weren't expecting advertising before. What are they, what are they saying? <laughs> Nothing good. No, I'm just kidding. I, actually, for the most part, I've heard they're saying, take a taxi. If you've had too much to drink, uh, here's a taxi service for you. That's one example of how they're being used. Yeah. And again, this is one where TV ads, radio ads, ads online following you everywhere. But I started, when I was reading your book, I started to write down in the back all of the examples of weird ad places. At some point, I just in sort of depression stopped doing it. But handles of shopping carts, tables on airplanes, surface of supermarket eggs, postage stamps, the urinal cakes, gas station pumps, elevators, ATM, workplace ads, thermostats, refrigerators, car dashboards, garbage cans, parking meters, trailhead signs, schools, report cards. And this is when I started to just, they're just everywhere. Right. All right. Yeah, they're always in our field of vision. It's kind of funny because Someone wrote a book, an advertising agency executive, a famous one, called The End of Advertising a couple of years ago. He said, look at you know the way we're consuming entertainment now. Netflix, Amazon Prime, actually, there's not going to be any commercials anymore. And sure, we're, we're more adept at skipping those kind of 30-second commercials in between television shows. People watch TV on streaming platforms more and more now instead. But that doesn't mean we've gotten rid of advertising. In fact, even on those platforms... It might not be as obvious. You don't have the break for a commercial, but there is tons of product placements in all the things we watch today. So even when we're watching Stranger Things, we're not avoiding advertising. Instead, there's all these tie-in deals who are exposed to in advertising in the context of the show. And then there are places that I think should be traditionally more ad-free or ad-resistant, civic spaces, public schools, civic infrastructure. Those things are becoming advertising canvases as well. So how does this moment, just in terms of the quantity and places of ads, compare to the historical arc here? So I want to be careful because it's not like schools were always advertising-free. It's not like there was never any combination of commercialism and civic space. But what we see now is just, a, I think, a massive surge in, in quantity, and just this is common across the country now, that all these spaces where advertising was at least kept at a remove, uh, now it's being welcomed often with, with open arms. So it's not that these spaces were always ad-free, but just now I think we're living in a, in a moment where there's very little resistance to advertising in all these areas of our lives. How many ads does a person see in a typical day? So what the, the social scientists say, and it's hard to measure and it depends on how you define advertising, but the, the standard figure in the discipline is 3,000 ads per day. It's incredible. It's a lot, it, right? in, in the build-up to your talk, uh, my wife Sarah and I, in our house, we were trying to this exercise of to what extent can we remove ads and brands just from our house? And we didn't even make it out of the, like, the bathroom. 
in terms of the quantity of soap and shampoo. It's like a kind of remarkable thing. Like you actually stop. Like wherever you are right now listening, just stop and look around you and count up how many ads you can see. It's probably for most folks like 20, 50, 100 plus. Yeah, that's a great example. It's something I do the the first day when I teach trademarks in school. And I ask people to look around and yeah, you're right. It's not hard. All the coffee cups that have the, the Starbucks siren on them, the things people are wearing, all the baseball caps, the logos on their, on their laptops, they're all around us. When did advertising really start to kick off? Advertising that we think of it today, modern advertising, around the end of the, the 19th century, early 20th century, that's where we first got kind of mass market advertising. There was a revolution in consumer goods, mass production of these goods, revolution in transportation. So all of a sudden, instead of just going to the dry goods store in your local town, poking around, asking the storekeep for that flour or that farming implement, uh, now you have these far-flung brands coming to your you know little portion of the United States. And how do they signal quality? Before, you could talk to the person in your hometown and say, is this good flour? Is this is a good uh, farming implant? Now you need to have some sort of attachment that gives you some security. And the way they did that is with brands. You know, buy McCormick's Thresher. You know, buy gold metal flour. And so people felt a comfort with that. Oh, that's my symbol of quality. I bought it last time it was good. I'll buy it again. And because of that, we saw an attendant growth in advertising at the same time. And do we know anything about how people reacted to this? I mean, it's hard to imagine a world without advertisements now. Although there are spaces in some of the examples you give in the book around ads on, you know, re- children's report cards or in parks. For, for me, at least reading those, it was kind of shocking. Was there a similar thing with even just the first ad for soap showing up in someone's house at the turn of the 19th century? I think there was some resistance, and I don't know about specific anecdotes, but people were nervous about this coming in. They were resistant to change. And fast-forwarding a little bit, even ads on radio, at first there was a pushback against that. And the fear, actually, I think it was Herbert Hoover was one of the people who was opposed to it, was that this would be too effective. You know, something about these disembodied voices on the air would compel us to buy in a way that was different from mouth to mouth. So there was a there is a reaction to there. There's a little bit of a one with TV. I think each time there's a new space, there's a little bit of a reaction. One thing I talk about in the book a little bit, a more modern example, is advertising in the movies. That's sort of a 1990s story. And of course, there's always been previews for coming attractions or, hey, come to the snack stand and buy our popcorn. But commercials, before you sit down for the movie, that have nothing to do with the movies, but are instead about buying a car or uh, buying some sort of beauty product. That's a new phenomenon. That's the 1990s. And people hated that when it started. And there was even some talk of passing laws to ban the practice. People were really resentful of it. But over time, we got used to it. Uh, the resistance faded. And now, you know, even if you go to art house theaters, you can expect to watch some commercials before the movie starts. And we say people got used to it. Do you have in mind have stopped lobbying to outlaw it or people just don't even mind it? Because like subjectively, I still get annoyed. So I, th- I think both. So the very tangible means of resistance after you know proposing legislation to change the practice that hasn't happened in a long time we've kind of accepted that and there were a couple actual lawsuits about movies not starting at the time that was promised because of all these ads and those have kind of faded away or they they've fixed that that problem so the legal resistance i guess has has faded away but also i think just personal resistance so i remember when this started watching movies where i lived in san francisco and people would jump out of their seats and scream. They'd raise their middle fingers. They'd say all these things at the screen. They'd yell at the projector. And that doesn't happen anymore. You know, people stay there. Maybe they, maybe they grumble or like, like you, I feel annoyed. But we still sit there and, and say, well, that's the price I have to pay, I guess, to watch Avengers Endgame or whatever I'm watching in the movie theater. So it's become normalized. It's become something we expect and no longer really resist. Do we have any examples of places where ads started to creep into and then the resistance succeeded? One example from the past is billboards. Billboards 
in the early 20th century. The automobile became not just a luxury for the very rich. Average people started driving the motor cars. What do you do on a Sunday? You go out for a long drive on these new highways. And so businesses saw that and said, this is a great untapped space for advertising. We'll put billboards up all along the road, and people are doing these Sunday drives. And sometimes they'd go so far as to block out all the scenery, right? There'd be advertisements on top of advertisement on top of advertisement. States and municipalities objected, tried to pass laws to stop the process. Initially, there was pushback. The courts weren't on board, but there was enough pushback over time that we do have laws now that prevent. Uh, if you think we have a lot of billboards now, we have a lot more circa 1915. And so that's an example of where I think uh, we could have had a lot more in a territory, but there was a pushback from the general public and the legal system, and so now we have some limits. You noted in your acknowledgement section around when you had kids feeling a particular pull towards this as an issue. Why? Say a little more about that. Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, I kind of had a faith in my own ability to resist advertising. So I noted some of it out there, but uh, I can handle that. And I see myself as uh, maybe susceptible to some advertising, but a, a bit of a, you know, I'd use my rational mind, I'd avoid these things. But then I thought, well, I have little kids, and they're not as equipped to resist this stuff. So what can, you know, what can I do? And once I had that in mind, I just noticed so many advertisements around us and around them and even trying to limit them in my home, maybe a little bit like the exercise you talked about. It's just really hard to block that. And you, you know, driving to school in the car, they see all these advertisements around, they're broadcast everywhere. And then it also got me to think about my own capability for resistance. Actually, I thought more about, you know what, that, that commercial that's on all the time that's really annoying Strangely, that's the first thing I think of when I'm thinking about buying something in this product category. Why is that? It's annoying, but just the mere power of repetition means that I'm inclined to think about that as my first choice. So I'm not as able to resist advertising as I thought I would. How well do advertisements work? What do you know about the science in this space? Well, that's a big question, and there's a lot of people who get paid a lot of money to work on that and, of course, say my, my approach works and, and yours doesn't. You know, for a long time, we knew very little about how it works, and so it was a lot of guesswork, and it was much more of a, of a art form uh, than than a science. I think we can say that we have some clues, at least, that some advertising is very effective. A big clue for me, at least, is that look how much money is spent on it. You know, look, you know, if 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 businesses were rational actors and they're spending so much of their budget on this as opposed to research and development, it must have, you know, a certain impact. Tell me about the Pepsi challenge. Sure. So I'll tell you about the analog Pepsi challenge and then the modern one. Right? So when I was a kid, uh, there was something called the Pepsi challenge in grocery stores. And this is a big deal for Pepsi because they were definitely number two in the soft drink industry and they wanted to try to gain some market share. So you'd go to the supermarket and there'd be a booth set up and that booth would offer you a blind taste test. You'd have a sip of Pepsi, a sip of Coke, and then after you picked your favorite choice, the person running the booth would tell you which you picked. And it turned out by a pretty sizable statistical margin, I think it was around 57% to 43%, people preferred a sip of Pepsi. And so Pepsi pointed to this and say, look, we're better than Coke. And that was a good way to get people to, to buy, buy Pepsi. It didn't make Pepsi number one, but it helped them claim some market share. Now, today, we're talking about advertising effectiveness. And what the scientists did, who are working more and more in conjunction with advertisers, is they did brain scans. So they put people in a magnetic resonance imaging scanner to detect changes in blood flow and oxygen in the brain. And they had them take sips, blind sips, of Pepsi and Coke. And same thing happened. When you took a sip of Pepsi versus a sip of Coke, the odds are, not for everybody, but the odds are that according to certain indicia in the brain, you enjoyed the Pepsi more. And then what the, the scientists did is they reversed, and they said, okay, now take a sip, but we're going to show you what you're drinking. There's a little window in the MRI scanner. Shows, are you drinking Coke or are you drinking Pepsi? 
And that reversed the brain chemistry. At that point, more people enjoyed, based on these signals in the, in the brain, more people enjoyed the Coke rather than the Pepsi. And so the scientists said, look, advertising changes your brain chemistry. It is definitely effective. And companies noticed. And so now they often rely on brain science to help design more compelling advertising. So one of the things you and I were talking about earlier was the kind of redirect ad technologies that are in place. T- tell me, how does this work? Yeah, so one thing I find sometimes when I talk to people is they're very resistant. They say, advertising doesn't affect me. You know, I recognize it for what it is. And these are very savvy, smart people. But they say, oh, I saw the ad, but I didn't buy it. But I think when you look at this a little more and you look at just all the the data that's out there about how advertising influences us, even the most resistant person is influenced by advertising. And I'll give you kind of what I think is a very powerful example. So uh, Google advertises its ability to engage in counter-programming, to actually change the behavioral aspirations of people and reroute them as they're going to Google to conduct searches. And they began this for a very positive purpose. You know, so uh, it was used as a method to try to steer would-be ISIS radicals in a new direction. So these were people who were tracked and identified as people who may be sympathetic to, to ISIS or other radical groups. And what Google did is they funneled them to anti-ISIS uh, websites where they would be made fun of or it would be pointed out, well, here's some things ISIS says that just aren't true. And it seemed to, to work when they looked and studied these people. It did seem to work. It had a de-radicalizing function. Also used uh, by someone to, to reroute people who were suicidal, who went to Google to see about, you know, thinking about suicide or considering methods for suicide. And they rerouted to a suicide prevention website, you know, which is a great thing. And when you look through the click-through rates, it actually steered a lot of people to clicking on the suicide prevention box. So this is, this is a great use of behavioral modification. The thing is, is that also developed a toolkit that Google has branded that they call the redirect method. And it's on there, on the shelf, for any private business to use to steer people in a different direction. So to those, of, those people out there who say, advertising doesn't work, I say, no, yes, it does, and it works in very powerful situations. Suicidal people, would-be terrorists, you know, if it worked for them, do you really think it's, you know, people who are interested in a particular commercial item can't be re-steered in another direction? And one thing that I worry about is it's going to re-steer us in bad directions towards, you know, I was looking at solar panels, or, or let's take an electric car, but oh, you know, someone paid for this, so I'm actually going to get that truck that gets 16 miles to the gallon instead. Or I'm going to, you know, shop for healthy food. No, I've actually been redirected by someone who wants to sell me uh, really fatty, you know, donuts or something like that. So I think we have to realize that there are mechanisms out there that are very competent at steering us in directions when we don't even realize it. Seems like another, this is a lot of probably concrete examples. Another space would be something like in the pharmaceutical in- industry. Once something flips over and could be a generic drug, it's literally the exact same compound, but people still flop back to whatever the name brand is and pay fourfold, fivefold in a way that's been really hard for generics to combat. Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of our decisions in the marketplace are based on kind of hazy associations with brands and not really always about content or qualities, but more of a feeling about them, more of a, oh, you know, I get a warm feeling about this brand. I mean, why does Coca-Cola associate itself with Santa Claus and cute polar bears? Not because Santa Claus and polar bears make Coke taste any better, but because of that warm association we get with the name Coca-Cola. And that's not just about Coke. You point out pharmaceuticals. Try watching pharmaceutical commercials. There is very little information about the actual content or qualities or effects of the drug. It is much more a a hazy kind of picture of how you will feel taking this particular drug. And as a way to differentiate the drug, not only to get people to seek it out for some sort of medical problem early on, 
But to stick with it, you know, even though sticking with it would seem to be counterintuitive when you're having a generic drug that has all the same medicinal properties. And interesting note related to that, the United States is an outlier uh, in that we allow advertising directly to consumers. The rest of the world thinks we're crazy. You know, they're saying, oh, only doctors should know about this stuff. Consumers aren't capable on their own of picking out the right drug. Leave that to the doctors. But in here, we allow all these commercials directly to the consumer. What's the argument for why we want ads? There are some good ones. Advertising, you know, I've talked about the emotional appeal, but advertising definitely provides information in some form. Advertising tells you often about price. It tells you about the qualities of the good, you know, what kind of fuel economy does this car get? That's useful information for making a purchasing decision. Advertising can tell us rational inputs to make a decision about what we want in the marketplace. And the theory behind that is not only does it link the goods consumer want with those consumers, but by doing that, it increases the burden on other suppliers to step up their game. Oh, well, if someone else is making a car with good fuel economy, I should do the same thing. Or if someone else is making a product that's lower in fat and tastes delicious, maybe I'm going to have to do the same thing as well. So done the right way, you know, advertising leads us to things we, we want, arguably makes us happier, more satisfied in our lives. It can do a lot of good things. And how much do you buy these arguments? So I buy them as far as they go. You know, I'm not proposing a world without advertising. What my beef is, is that a lot of the advertising we see gives us hardly any information. It's more about these kind of very vague appeals to get to you to be familiar with the brand and to have some just general positive association with the brand. It's not about raw information. And then my other beef with it is just the ubiquity of it. Uh, I think there are certain spaces where we don't want to be sold to. There are certain spaces where we want to be able to contemplate other things than kind of commercial imperatives, than material imperatives. Not that commercialism is bad, not that materialism is bad. You know, that's the lifeblood of a lot of our lives. But should it be everything in our lives? Should it be what my kids face in school? Should it be part of my experience in a scenic area like a national park. I would say certain territories uh, should be kept off limits from this. Why? Because I think it's good to have reserves of contemplation where we're not being sold to. So maybe a little materialism is good, but do I want 24-7 to be thinking about uh, you know, what can make my life materially better as opposed to spiritually better? I think there's, there's a concern with that. I also think that, you know, talking about advertising in the schools, you know, we want to be careful about advertising to people and in situations where they haven't had time to build up their defenses. And so kids, instead of maybe being skeptical of these ads, early on, they're taking them at face value. And instead of, instead of being skeptical of them, instead, it's just becoming normal. And so better to have an environment where they can kind of learn to keep their guard down, learn about other things, and then gradually be exposed to these things that, you know, arguably are the lifeblood of a capitalist economy. We can't get rid of advertising as a whole, but we don't need it all the time. And it seems there's a connection between the spaces where advertisements occur and really what it's trying to do. So to take seriously the informational argument, if I'm, you know, in the Quickmark store, seeing posters for different drink prices or on the auto lot seeing prices in a way that kind of makes sense in contrast to if I'm in a park or something. But it seems like now with ads that are not really, if we're serious, about, to your point, conveying information and are more about sort of priming a just a, a base kind of affinity or even a sense of I'm, my identity is wrapped up in this, that you need it to be ubiquitous and always around you and in those vulnerable moments. Is this, is this tracking something along the lines of how you think about it? Yeah, no, that's a, it's, a, it's a very good way you, you put it. And so I think a lot of what we're exposed to is not about there's a one-to-one relationship. You see the ad, you think, oh, I need one of those. It's at a good price. And you march to the store 
that moment or even later that day. A lot of it is about installing these things that the psychologists call somatic markers. So you you have a general hazy association with that product or that trademark. It's in your head, and then it can be retrieved later. So a lot of what we see in all these environments where we wouldn't have any possibility of actually purchasing the item you know, let's say on that seat back table in the in the airplane, you know, it's just about installing this hazy memory, and then that can be retrieved later on by subsequent advertising. So that's why I think you talk to a lot of people and like they say, you know, that advertising that advertisement was dumb because I don't even know what product they're selling. And we, we even see this in Super Bowl commercials, right? Oh, they wasted their money because I can't even remember their product. Not necessarily, right? It's part of a a longer plan. So maybe I don't know what product it is, but I remember, you know, that really weird Super Bowl commercial, uh, you know, it's kind of stuck in my memory now and it can be retrieved later. And so maybe the product unveiling or more content about the product will be delivered later in a subsequent advertisement or even something I see in the mall or in, or online. And I've already been primed to have a warm feeling or a positive feeling with that. And that can eventually be led to purchase. So these things make sense, I think, from the advertiser perspective. It's not like these these ads in these strange spaces or these ones that don't actually tell us anything about price or product quality. They still make sense for the bottom line of these companies, but I think we have to ask if if this always makes sense for the bottom line for the people who are exposed to these commercials. Yeah, and that's one where uh, we're countering a lot of in the pro-advertisement blogs and stuff on this examples like you know refrigerators and electricity and stuff wouldn't have spread if the information wasn't being pushed out and i mean i'd be curious to know if you buy that sure so i think part of the arguments and kind of an interesting thing is advertisers were not thought of very highly in the early 20th century they were sort of seen as people with no particular expertise Sometimes they were a little bit of flim-flam artists, and they said, you know what, we need, to, we need to burnish our credentials if we're going to gain professional standing and also maybe some perks from other professionals, including legal professionals. And so they really associated themselves with science and a pedigree and licensing organizations to make themselves stand out more. And anything, one thing they said is, why are we good? Well, we're teaching people who are coming to America, newfound immigrants, the right way to live. And we're introducing modern conveniences. Back then it was like the refrigerator or the vacuum cleaner or what I find kind of funny to uh, my ears in 2019 is new products like shredded wheat or fruit for desserts. And the argument was is that, well, people wouldn't figure these things out but for advertising. And maybe that's true to some degree, particularly in that time. Like people need to know this was even an option. So I buy that in a, in a limited degree. Just the, the thing I think that we need to realize is that telegraphing new products to people is not the only thing advertising does. There's a lot of thing that's just about kind of taking people on an emotional ride over time that's not about the newness of a product. That's an informational thing. Oh, there's a new product out there. A lot of it is about you know, just building up these kind of emotional resonances with brands that's not about information at all the counterfactual where i don't see the ad for those shredded wheats to suddenly be primed to want shredded wheats how do i think about how worse off i am if i just maintain in a state of not thinking about or caring about shredded wheats i guess what i'd say there is that people do benefit from advertising they get new products they get things in different ways and Let's say that I, I get all this advertising, and I don't get anything new, but I like it more because of all the advertising telling me that it's emotionally good for me. Maybe those polar bears and Santa Claus with, with Coca-Cola are good because I just like it more because of all the emotional resonance that's been attached to it that's been beaten to my brain from all this advertising. And I, I actually believe in that a little bit, and I think... Economists would tell you, we don't care if the product is objectively better 
or if it's just better inside your head because of all the emotional advertising you've been exposed to. If you're enjoying it more because of the polar bears, then that's still a net you tile better than if you didn't see the polar bears. And I'll accept a little bit of that. But where I think that we need to be careful is saying that that's the only consequence of all the advertising. And the thing is, is that if you're influenced enough by this, and I think we often are influenced by this, you might not accept that cola product that actually has been tested out and people like better in a blind taste test. Or you might not like those products that uh, deliver more reliability or that deliver more environmental benefits. You might not make those part of your calculus because you're still wedded to the emotional feeling you feel about that brand. And that's a hard thing to, to pinpoint, but I think it's a, it's a cost to advertising that advertising's defenders aren't always willing to acknowledge. The other thing that seems a little disingenuous here is you know, a lot of this is really priming people to construct a preference on the fly. You're not born with some platonic sense of whether you like Pepsi versus Coke. But a lot of times whenever you're confronted with a product or something for the first time, you start to imagine how would I interact with this? How would I like it? And with advertisements, the information that's conveyed is very asymmetrical in the sense it's all about the pros. It's the deliciousness. It's the nice associations with Santa Claus. It's not about how too much sugar is going to be bad for you or how it might make you drowsy later or how it's going to affect your health. Right. That's absolutely right. So a couple a couple things I'll, I'll talk about there. So a lot of the advertising isn't about, hey, you're a rational actor. Let me tell you about this, you know, pros and cons. Instead, there's a prime mover advantage. So can I get in Mark's brain early on and get that kind of valuable cognitive real estate early because I can retrieve that later. So that's part of what's going on. I don't think that makes us feel great about rational acting or efficient markets. And then, like you said, you know, most of it is about pros and not even like concrete pros. It's more kind of hazy things to make you feel good about the, the product. One thing I love when I'm talking about advertising is comparative advertising, where one business really takes a whack at another and tries to show why their product is better than another. I think that we don't see nearly enough of that. And part of that is because uh, the businesses make a calculated decision. You know, it's much more advantageous for me not to tear down the competition and risk consumers feeling bad about a product category. So instead, I'm just going to try to burnish my own emotional association with the brand and not try to show people, hey, here's why product B is actually better than product A. I like the Pepsi challenge. You know, we can talk about why the Pepsi challenge worked and how maybe it wasn't uh, on all fours with an objective way to pick a soda, but at least it was giving people concrete information about why they should buy one soda versus the other. We don't see too many advertisements like that today. The other thing that maybe deflates the information justification for ads being everywhere is actually living in the age of the internet and the search engine. I mean, now, if I'm experiencing a problem, I don't like my breakfast enough or I'm struggling to keep things cold, I can go to the search browser and type in, like, what can help me do this? We're empowered to go search for information in a way that's much more convenient and easy it seems like you could kind of obliterate the need for this. Like, I, like, like I frame it as like, a, like a, an offer to the to the marketing world. You tell me if you think they would accept this if they're genuine about consumers really wanting this information and really appreciating this ad. Give me a mode of my browser that's completely ad free, and then I can switch on when I want to be in the advertising version of the browser when I do want all of this information bombarded on me. And I'd be curious to know how often people are in that second mode. Yeah, I have a feeling that would be a, a tough a tough sell, right? Right. I think most of us would stay in the the non advertising mode for for a lot of the time. I think some people would say, and I agree with this to a limited fashion. Right, consumers are more empowered, and that there is more information at their disposal. Unlike the person in 1920 who is sort of taking at face value what the, the the message on the package was and maybe their experience with it after they bought it the first time decided it was any good or not. Now we can look up product reviews. You know, now we can compare things. Uh, uh, the problem with that is is that we have limited time, limited cognitive budgets. 
we can't always do a lot of research on these things. Also, you know, in the online space, it's not like the online space is this haven for rational actors. You know, uh, I think something that's been a concern of yours, and I know something that, that you'll talk about in other contexts, is design. Right? We can think of different ways to structure design, but when I look at the way commercial space is constructed via design, it is one that is very advertiser-friendly and not very consumer-friendly. So we are pushed and funneled into different areas where we're not going to think a lot about product qualities. When we research it, uh, sure, there are avenues open. We can look at ratings. Often those ratings are gamed, however. They're not always bona fide. We've seen reports lately about uh, special teams at places like Amazon and other companies designed to you know, boost the ratings with their own cheerleading. So unfortunately, it's not like we have this great kind of objective place we can turn to to get the real skinny on the products we want to buy. At least I find that isn't always easy to find. What the do not call registry? How does it, what it, for, for folks that don't know what this is, can you maybe say what it is first? Sure, sure. So the do not call registry was a response to uh, telemarketers, right? And I think we've all experienced these, right? The, the people who call our house at, at dinner when we don't want to to try to, to sell us something. And so kind of surprisingly, because the Federal Trade Commission in the uh, administration of George W. Bush took a step back from some pro-consumer, I guess you'd call them initiatives, But one thing they championed and pushed through was this do not call registry where you could actually put your name on a list and not have telemarketers call you. And if they called you, you could request that your name be taken off that list to actually prevent the telemarketers from calling you at home. So, you know, in the book, I give a lot of examples of advertising spreading, of entering other territories, of it not being stopped. Here's an example of government officials, regulators, actually putting something in place that arguably was designed to stop and limit the advertising we're exposed to. And the legal challenges to this. Yeah. So one thing that I think people would be surprised about, at least I was surprised about, is that the telemarketers said, this is a violation of our First Amendment rights. We have a right to call you up during dinner and pester you to buy some stupid thing you don't want. That's the First Amendment. And at least at first blush, this was a successful First Amendment challenge. So in the first case that heard this, the Do Not Call Registry was struck down as violating the First Amendment, saying, yeah, you have a right to be bugged in your own home. Uh, Subsequently, there was was a, a higher court which allowed it in with certain exceptions to make it more palatable under the First Amendment. But uh, I think everyone should realize is that this is a tenuous proposition. It's one appeals court. It didn't go up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is very bullish on the First Amendment rights of commercial speakers. So I wouldn't be surprised if something else like this could come up someday that we'd think, well, of course we should be able to limit this. And no, they'd say it's the right of commercial speakers to to bother you these 3,000 times a day, and the First Amendment gives them a right to do that. This this legal challenge, I got it, that is just remarkable to me. I don't, I don't even know how it's taken seriously. I mean, in the sense that it'd be one thing if it was just, you know, banning companies from making outbound calls. It seems like an important fact here is that this is something you opt into. And so you have individuals saying, I don't want this type of intrusion on my house, that I don't know what the right like parallels are here, but you know, I don't know if someone has a first amendment right to like walk up to my window and just scream through a bullhorn into my house all day, every day. I, I would assume not. How like maybe give me maybe give me a little bit more here on how this like what's the convince me to not laugh at this argument. Let me let me put it <laughs> well, that way. Well, so I I want you to encourage <laughs> I want to encourage you to laugh a little bit. I I don't I don't approve of this interpretation of the First Amendment because So I like history, and going back to not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, 1942, or even in the 50s and 60s as well, there were no First Amendment rights for advertisers. So government regulators could do what they wanted with advertising. If they don't want advertisements in the color blue, they could say no advertisements in the color blue. And so it's only been in more recent years, beginning in the 1970s, that 
we have a whole line of cases saying, oh, advertisers have First Amendment rights. This is valuable speech. And I don't think that there should be no rights to commercial speech. But I do think when we're saying that you can't have a government regulator uh, step in to allow people who have already put themselves on record that they don't want to be targeted with commercial appeals by telemarketers, if you, if you say, no, that's somehow a violation of the First Amendment, it's not a reasonable restriction. And a lot of these things boil down to, well, is something a reasonable restriction? Then I think the First Amendment rights of advertisers have gone too far. So what we're seeing, I think, since that earlier time I talked about where there's no limits on what government can do with advertising, we've moved to a position now after a brief interim period where there was a balance. Well, the courts would ask, is this reasonable? Does the government have a plausible justification for stopping this? I think there was a plausible reason for the do not call us. People hated it. They felt violated in the dinner hour. So, and they, and they voiced their concerns with opting out. Why not, why not allow that? Now we see more and more when the court addresses commercial speech, a thought that this is, this is akin to political speech where any government restrictions on it are paternalistic, thinking that they need to protect audiences from what they're going to hear. And for that reason, we're going to strike it down as a violation of the First Amendment. And to me, that's part of a whole general shift in how we view about advertising, how we view about the role of government. And it's pernicious for all sorts of reasons. But one effect is, is we're seeing more and more advertising and less government regulation of it. Yeah, and again, with the do not call, it seems like the what short circuits the paternalism concern is it's opt-in. It's individuals and families choose. It's not government telling them to. It's me trying to stop calls or mailers coming to my house. Yeah, yeah, and that gives us some comfort. And and right now we do have a do not call registry, so it is the law of the land. So I don't mean to apply that imply that you know it didn't survive. But we've seen other cases that kind of weaken this uh, and and also bring up the whole kind of paternalism argument. You know, so if I can just give one other example that that at least I find compelling, you know, is so cigarette warnings. We already have cigarette warnings, but by an act of Congress, Congress proposed graphic cigarette warnings. So actual pictures on the cigarettes of the consequences of cigarette smoking. Right? Congress approved it, government regulators came up with a list of images, and they were powerful images. You know, they weren't going to, you know, hit you with kid gloves here. So crying children enveloped in smoke, uh, a scene of someone on a table with uh, a a table like you would be going in for surgery, for heart surgery, uh, various things that showed the health consequences of smoking in real and, and partially informational, partially emotional terms. The cigarette companies challenged this and they said, we shouldn't be compelled to put this on our packs. Why? It's a violation of the First Amendment. How dare you make us put this on the packs? Sure, we, we'll, we'll have the black and white messages we've all seen that we've required to put on there, but it's a violation of First Amendment rights to make us give up all this valuable real estate on the cigarette pack with these advertisements that hit people with these emotional punches. All right? And what the government regulators said is, hey, we, you know, they actually said this in the briefs, we can't be forced to bring a knife to a gunfight. You, know, you are bombarded by emotional appeals for why smoking is good. How about just a little bit in the same direction for why smoking is bad? And studies show that over time people ignore those black and white warnings on the packs, so we need something else to get people's attention. But what the court and review said is, no, this is a violation of the First Amendment. We don't think the cigarette companies should be compelled to do this. And we disagree with the government getting into the emotional advertising business. That's okay for the companies to do, but we're not going to allow the government to get into that business as well, at least if they're piggybacking on the cigarette company's own packaging. And that's the law of the land now, right? The, the cigarettes boxes don't have these images on them. Yeah, even even though they're common in other countries. Other countries have done this, and they've shown uh, a certain amount of success in reducing smoking rates. Has there been anything like a do-not-call 
push in the internet space? So there have been some proposals, but they really haven't gone very far. And and I think it's because probably a little bit of the hangover from the Do Not Call Registry, although it was a very popular program. Partially, it's just not the will to go up against the big internet service providers and their lobbying muscle. So what we're really left with is self-help. You know, install these plugins, install these ad blockers. And so it's it's really kind of relying on private solutions to try to deal with this. But of course, that engineers an arms race. So you put in the ad blocker, but then there are certain things that defeat the ad blocker. I'm sure we've all had the experience, for those of you who install ad blockers, which is probably a pretty large uh, uh, selection of your listeners, some places won't let you go you know, to the desired website if you have the ad blocker. Please disable it for us. So we're left with that kind of what I described as an anti-ad, pro-ad arms race for the con- that the consumer has to participate in instead of just having limits set by, you know, a standard-setting government authority. And this runs up against the other big argument for ads, which is its ability to subsidize a product for consumers, whether it's newspapers or websites. I'm curious, first, what you make of this particular justification, the economic one for subsidizing things. Sure. So I, th- I think it depends on the context. And you're right. That's often an argument we see out there. You know, why do we have so much of it? Because it's the lifeblood that makes these different places run. And some of the places I talk about where I think we should be very resistant to the creep of advertising, it actually offers very little money. So, you know, I think that there are certain spaces, public spaces, where we should be more careful about the spread of advertising than others. So, for example, public transportation or city bridges or city parking meters or the schools, those are areas, I think, where we should be very worried about just turning them into, you know, little time squares. And turns out that these places usually don't get that much money for them. Now, often in this day and age, our our you know our civic transit authorities are starved for funds, and we you know they might say every little bit helps, but it's not like being willing to put advertising on the side of light rail is suddenly going to make you know these these places run smoothly or advertising uh, you know buying naming rights for New York City subway stations is going to cure all the all the ills of the New York subways. It's actually not that much money, so I think we should be skeptical of the argument in those situations. Now, it also comes up a lot when we're talking about online spaces. And they say, oh, well, you've gotten used to Facebook for free. You've gotten used to the world at your fingertips at Google for free. And why do you have that? Because of advertising. And fair enough, you know, these places rely on an advertising model. But I would like uh, a little more pushback to give consumers choices because the fact is, We've never really had much of a choice in this regard. I think some people would be willing to pay on a subscription-based model for these services if they had the choice. But they haven't had the choice. You know, these are these are quasi-monopolies. They're the only game in town, and 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 so I'm forced to put up with advertising to utilize those spaces. And maybe I'm willing to turn to the HBO of online search or social media. If I had that option, the product I've dreamed of here is one that when you get that pop up that says, hey, we're not going to let you through because you have an ad blocker on some sort of service that just lets me pass them five cents or whatever it is that is what they're getting from showing me an advertisement. Because I mean, I think a lot of what the friction is, is that it would be a real pain to have to go to the hundred websites you might visit over the month and get a subscription to all of them. But if we had just some sort of, you know, it's not exactly like a do not show me ads, but it's a it's an option to buy your way out of ads at some, whatever that de minimis price is that a company gets, like I would pay that, I'd pay that in a heartbeat. Right, right. Yeah. I And, and there is some talk of things like that, not so much from the the platforms that kind of gain from the the current, well, no subscription, but lots of advertisements model. But you do see talk about, you know, that would be a valuable thing if people could actually be paid for what their, you know, their attention and their eyeballs are worth, and then also 
paid to allow themselves to being tracked, I think that would be it would it might be a way for people to think about these things more than just clicking OK and allowing themselves to be tracked or allowing themselves to be exposed to to ads. But what's really unclear is whether the dominant platforms are going to be willing to switch from an all you can eat system to a a la carte system like that, because oftentimes it's better for their bottom line if everybody is forced to the buffet and not choosing this dish or that dish. You might say, oh, you know, I, you know, I didn't really want to read that article that much, or I didn't really want to do this that much, so I'm not going to pay the 10 cents or 5 cents. You know, if there's enough choices like that, then, then maybe the system doesn't work well enough for the bottom line of the big platforms. And that's pretty, I mean, from a consumer's perspective, that's pretty telling if all it takes is like a couple of pennies of friction to get me out of the black hole of scrolling to the next article down. I mean, maybe you, you might be right. It's exactly what they don't want you to do. But when you frame, when you frame it that way, it does reveal just how light the preference was for the product in the first place. Yeah, and this would be great to have more empirical research on this, just where the, the points of friction are. You know, I, I know... Now, if we ever get to a stage where this is feasible, what will people be willing to to pay? And and this brings me to another point about design is that more friction is a good thing. So one of the arguments you hear about this is we need it set up this way, the way it is now, because otherwise, you know, you'll have to wait for your search results from Google for a while, or you know, you won't get your access to Facebook right away. And the great thing about what we have today is it's seamless. Sure, there's some ads you're exposed to all the time, but this frictionless experience is great for commerce. It's great for consumers. But I think part of the problem is is that when we're not exposed to a little bit of friction, we're not making choices about this stuff. We're just letting it be ourselves go along the same way that the advertisers and the platforms want us to go, which is click OK, be exposed to the maximum amount of ads. So instead of clicking OK, maybe you need to have that disclosure about what you're being exposed to in visceral letters. Or maybe you have to somehow, you know, spell OK in cursive with your with your cursor or something like that. So you're, you have to stop and think a little bit more. And maybe when that happens we'll make some more choices about what advertising we actually want to be exposed to instead of just the default, which is exposed to the maximum. I know some economists tried to quantify how much your eyeballs are worth. And it's funny, there was, I forget who wrote it, there was an op-ed in the New York Times that was talking about this, and they were concerned that the amount would be so low that people wouldn't care, which is actually the, that's the opposite of the, the intuition I was having emanating my suggestion a moment ago, which is that if it's really, really low, then I would just pay whatever it is to not be exposed to this stuff, as opposed to, I guess, the intuition of the person writing it was if it was some astronomically high number, then everyone would be appreciative of like, oh, I'm grateful I don't have to pay <laughs> that. But I mean, you should tell me if you have any sense of what the number here might be, but I, I get the sense it's like not over, it's not going to be over a hundred bucks or something. No, no. I mean, mostly I've heard is cents per transaction. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that could add up. And a lot of what's being discussed isn't the, the, the individual transaction. It's more subscription based. And I'm even receptive to that. I think we need to be careful about though, because you know, more and more we're seeing privacy as a luxury good, and, and, and part of this is a discussion not just about sheer exposure to advertising, but protecting your privacy. And I'm concerned about a system where uh, people, you know, who can afford it aren't tracked, but people who can't afford it are the ones who have their every digital move staked out, who are exposed to more advertising, who are exposed to more compelling advertising, who have their online travels used against them. If we actually have people pay, you know, for advertising or, or advertising free experiences, I think we need to make sure that we're not going to price out certain sections of the population. That is another interesting window, that that being places where you kind of buy your way out of the experience of ads. 
I felt this sharply. I was kind of stuck in an airport for a long time, uh, a couple of months ago, and it was a long enough time where I finally, I finally bought access to one of the lounge rooms, which is something I had never done before. And the thing that just immediately struck me and has stuck with me since, you know, you go through the glass doors, you go in, and there's just no advertisements. The TVs and stuff weren't on. It was, it was almost immediate relief of anxiety and aesthetically so much more pleasant. Like I just felt so much comfortable because ads weren't around. I mean the other places it seems like you get this are, you know, really rich gated neighborhoods and things like that. (laughs) One of the things they always do is make sure there's no billboards and ads everywhere. So, yeah, I think we need to be careful before we replace one paradigm with one where only the elites have the benefit of not being exposed to commercial messaging all the time. And it has been documented already. I mean, already the world we're living in now are people of a lower socioeconomic background, people of color are exposed to more surveillance, often by the government, but also by commercial actors more frequently than people who have more resources and can buy their way out of it. Tell me more about surveillance, the other kind of now modern elephant in the room when it comes to advertising. Yeah, so a lot of what's going on here isn't just developing compelling advertising. It's knowing the consumer better to get a better portrait of them so that you can be beamed with advertising that is tailored to you. And this is really a different state of affairs, I think, than we had even a few years ago. So the history of modern advertising really focused on these broad-based appeals, you know, Super Bowl commercials, advertisements on billboards, 30-second spots while you're watching things on television back in the days when people actually watched things on broadcast television all at the same time. And they were meant to appeal to a really broad swath of the population because that's what they had to do. So you would reach you know, potentially an audience of 20 million people. And so you had to design ads that would be appealing to 20 million people. Now, thanks to the online space, we have ways of reaching people much more precisely, much more targeted advertising. And at the same time, by the nature of our online travels, what we do is, is trackable and what we do is sticky. You know, we have identifiers and and things that attach to us when they go we go around the web. And this results in a, a very rich and detailed portrait of who we are that can be used to deliver advertising to us in all sorts of different contexts that just didn't exist, you know, ten years ago. And so I think that changes the nature of the game when you when you have the ability to understand your audience so much better than you could when the name of the game was the advertisement that had to appeal to 50 million people and this undifferentiated mass. It's worth lingering on some of the examples that you give. You you talked about Facebook self-censorship files. What are those? Sure. So for a while, and I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge that Facebook no longer does this, but for a period of time, Facebook kept a record of what you typed to post to someone but then you thought better of and you deleted it. So let's say you're really angry at some interaction with your friends and you get ready to send a flame out there about how dare they do this to me. And then you take a break, you have a cold drink or whatever, and you delete the words on the screen and that you never hit send or never hit post for. Well, Facebook actually kept a record of these things. And not only that, but I think they had a telling label for this. They called it the individual's self-censorship file. In other words... Even the things that you started to type but then realized, no, that that doesn't represent me. I don't want it out there. I don't want that communicated to my friends. Facebook saw that as a no-no, you know, and they said, oh, that's self-censorship. The things that come to your mind, you know, just the gut reactions, you should send that out there to everybody. Why? Because that's valuable information for us. We wish you would send it out there. The more things you send out there, the better. The more we can understand you and how to appeal to you with targeted advertising. What about Kindle and different reading apps? Yeah, so different e-readers, which are which are great. You know, one thing that I always worry about is I don't want to sound one note. These are these are things of convenience that are often you know very valuable in our lives. But there's a downside to e-readers. One is they record, you know, 
how you look for books, what books you select, how long it takes you to read a book, how long it takes you to read particular pages, where you read a, read a book, what passages you highlight. All these things are recorded by Amazon or other companies that make e-readers, and they're used to know us on a much more intimate level. In some ways, our reading material and our choice of how we read it is a very intimate window to, to how we are. And it's a very different state of affairs than a few years ago where nobody would really know what I read and how I read it. Definitely not at that level. Maybe they'd know something about the choice of books I made at the public library, but that was kept very carefully limited to only a few librarians and only to track me down for a book I kept past the due date. So that's a different way to know consumers even better. How about expanding uses of facial and voice recognition? So this is very attractive to businesses because it's a way to know consumers on a particularly deep level in a couple of ways. So one thing about some of the ways we have for tracking people, think about shopping loyalty cards. Those are valuable for retailers. There's a reason why virtually every supermarket uses them now. But the data can be confounded because, you know, I let my wife use mine. Uh, sometimes we loan it out to other people if we have guests in town. And so instead of the, the grocery store knowing, oh, this is Mark who bought these Brussels sprouts or whatever, they're not sure who bought them, and so they can't develop a shopping profile just for me. Facial and voice recognition technology uses the unique identifier of my face or my voice to know it's just me shopping now, and now I know exactly what he's doing, and I can attach a very specific profile to him. And then the other thing that's attractive about these technologies is that they offer the potential for intuiting emotional states. So unlike a lot of the, the online surveillance, which knows a lot about me and what I do, uh, there's something very raw and intimate about knowing my facial expression or knowing the timbre of my voice. And the data scientists are working very hard on using that. And they already are using it in the field to know my emotional state as I go through the, the shopping experience. And I'll just note that these things are being used now as we speak in all sorts of commercial environments. You know, gas pumps scanning us with cameras to see how we're reacting and what we look like. This is being used in the field now to deliver advertising and customer service at a one-to-one -one level. So if we've got these types of creeps of advertisements in all sorts of different places, new modalities of it, what are the kinds of things we can do to resist it potentially? So I think, first of all, we should get mad and express our anger you know, so I, we talked about kind of advertising in the movies back in the 1990s, and people initially got mad, and there was some momentum for a, actual change and maybe cabbing it off the movies from advertising, but that kind of faded. But it was close to having some state legislation to prevent advertising in the movies. So if this stuff bothers you, get mad about it, express your anger. Bring that out when you talk to elected officials. I'm upset about A, B, and C, and B or C is all the advertising or all the surveillance I'm exposed to because without that, there won't be a lot of momentum. But then once we have people getting mad, enjoying a, you know, a, a consumer movement, then I'd look at specific policy prescriptions. So you know, some things are just quarantines, you know, uh, arguing for certain spaces to be off-limits. There are dangers to allowing advertising to creep in certain spaces because once those spaces become colonized, it can become really hard or even impossible to get them out of those spaces. One is we get used to it, like the movie advertising. But two is, is that once something is considered a public forum and you allow advertising into a space, it's a lot harder for government officials to pick and choose what they want to allow in there. So once you say, well, I want to allow this kind of advertising, but not, not that kind of advertising in, on parking meters, you know, the tendency is for people to argue, businesses to argue, oh, no, no, this is a public forum. If you allowed this in there, you have to allow me in there too, as long as they're willing to pay the specified price. So the genie can be only let out of the bottle once, and then it's really hard to push it back inside. Are there legal causes of action you think are 
underutilized that we could flex right now? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's there's uh, there's the Federal Trade Commission, and their mandate is just is pretty broad. It's to root out unfair or deceptive advertising. And I think some of the techniques we see today could arguably be called unfair or deceptive. Here's an organization that could do it. You know, they're underfunded. There's lots of things they look into. I'm a fan of the FTC, but there is more they could do if they had the resources or if they're pushed by, frankly, elected officials or the general public to move in that direction. There are things that state legislatures could do to revivify or slightly change existing laws, I think, to help address, at least begin to address some of these problems. And, and we see, you know, one of the great things about having different states is they can lead the charge in some of these things, and eventually the federal government or other states catch up. So California, you know, just proposed a new pretty vigorous privacy bill, which incorporates some of the general protections that the European Union has, protected, has created about letting people see, you know, their data that have been collected by commercial data aggregators, potentially allowing the erasure of some of that data, potentially setting higher fines for data breaches. These are all, I think, smart things that states can do to try to move the needle on some of this. And while we're all being mobilized to push these larger legal and regulatory and political efforts, what about just the things we can individually do starting tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just awareness is the the first thing. I mean, when I first heard that statistic, 3,000 ads a day that the average person is exposed to, I was like, wow. And I, I started to look around and there are so many things I'm exposed to. Now I can't block it all out by any fashion, but I can I can limit it a little bit. I can install ad blocker on what I'm watching. I can try to pay for some subscriptions that limit the amount of advertising that I'm exposed to. You know, it's it's a hassle, but you can use things like DuckDuckGo, the search engine, instead of Google. You can go into your settings in some of these things and actually limit the amount of collection that's on you. So if you have a smart speaker, go into your settings on Alexa and you can actually prevent some of the more promiscuous uses of your data. Now, the problem often with these things is that privacy settings change or these things are hard to click through. It takes a bit of time. But my recommendation, I guess, for the average person is, in addition to being aware, is spend a little bit of time. We all, we all have limited amounts of time and lots of important things to do. But it's worth a little bit in your day, I think, to have less commercial tracking less commercial messaging in your field of vision. Mark Bartholomew, thanks for being on 30,000 Leagues. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Jessica Davidson and Aidan Rasmussen. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on. I'm going to say the close out one more time because I think I did the mule on the end of your name again when I did it before. <laughs> I didn't even notice. I, well, you said you're used to it, but um, Mark Marth.